Well, today we get back into our summer sermon series titled Tweets from Scripture, where we look at short little passages of 140 characters or less and and, uh, delight in them and make application for our lives. Today's passage is like really, really short. Uh, It's John 11.35. Some of you will be familiar with it. Um, And it's in your bulletin. But what I ask you to do is there's a pew Bible in front of you. I want you to grab that because these words only make sense in light of uh, the the greater story that we're going to be looking at this morning. So it's on page 898 is where we find John 11.35, though John 11 begins the page before. Today's sermon is titled Hashtag Compassion. Let's pray. Father in heaven, um, oh, we need eyes to see this morning. Uh, So often the grief that we experience in our lives and the sorrow that is ever so close to us prevents us from seeing your love, prevents us from seeing your compassion. And um, so we pray that in this hour, you would um, remind us all the more of your love and how that flows to us. Work in our hearts as we will be convicted of things that we need to offer up to you in our own lives. Um, Be here with your spirit to remind us these things and teach us, we pray. Amen. Ella Wilcox once witnessed a strange phenomenon in the middle of a train car. She was sitting quietly in the middle all by herself, and then she noticed up front, in the front of the car, was a woman who was crying. And, and not just crying, she was like bawling her eyes out. Her, her shoulders were heaving with, with each sob. At first, this was a problem for Ella, but then she noticed there was another person in the car in the very back of the train car. It was an older gentleman, and he um, was telling funny story after funny story, and he was gathered around with all kinds of people who were laughing. It wasn't too long she also noticed that people were getting up from the front of the train car where the woman was crying and moving towards the back where the funny storyteller was. It was out of this experience that Ella Wilcox wrote the well-known adage, laugh and the world laughs with you, weep and you weep alone. It's true, isn't it? This world is so full of pain and sorrows that we can at times find ourselves weeping alone. And some of you are intimately aware of this grief. Some of you have lost a child or a husband or a wife. Some of you have been betrayed at the deepest level. Some of you had your hopes shattered and your dreams crushed. And it's during these seasons of sorrow that you observe the laughing world around you as if you are a stranger in a foreign land. The world laughs while you weep. And for the Christian, we would like to think that the gospel brings an immunity to sorrows. It doesn't. In fact, because of our kingdom calling, we are actually more likely to experience grief and sorrow. And add to that the fact that we have to wrap our heads around a seemingly seemingly contradictory truths. See, we say that God is all good and that he is powerful. 
And yet police officers are executed in cold blood on the very streets they had sworn to protect. Priests are beheaded as they're officiating in mass. Planes crash into buildings and thousands die. How can we say that God is good in the face of such tragedy? Our passage is just one short verse. It's just two words in the English. Eleven characters if you're keeping track of Twitter character count. But these words tell us with great certainty that God does see, he does understand, and he cares. Jesus, we experience in in verse 1135, we read, Jesus wept. Jesus wept. Jesus, the incarnate, divine Son of God, the one who spoke and a storm ceased, the one who commanded and demons fled, this Jesus wept. My friends, the compassion you desire, the Son of God gives you. To see this, we need to unpack the story in which Jesus wept, a story which, when understood, can bring meaning and comfort to your own story. And as we open up this story, we're going to see it's, it's far more going on here than just Jesus crying over some man he loved named Lazarus. And as we expose the details of the story, our own hearts will be exposed. Exposed to how much more we're concerned with our own glory than God's. Exposed to what we really believe will satisfy us in our grief and sorrow. Exposed to how often we question God's plan for our lives. Exposed to how we expect things from God and and, and then how easily we get disappointed when he doesn't deliver what we want in the moment. Our story begins with Jesus on the run in John chapter 10. He had just been teaching in Jerusalem, but the religious leaders there tried to arrest him and stone him to death. So he fled to the countryside. He is there when word comes to him that his beloved friend Lazarus was ill. We read at the beginning of chapter 11 that this is the same Lazarus whose sisters are Mary and Martha. We've read about them before, right? They live in the village of Bethany, which is just so, so close to Jerusalem. It's about two miles away. Jesus has no doubt spent much time at their home. They're like family to him. And Martha and Mary sent a word saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Now, how do you think Jesus responded? Uh Not exactly like you would expect. Listen to what we hear in verses 5 and 6. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. What? He loved them, so he stayed and did not come. That doesn't sound like compassion to me. If this is how our Lord loves, he loves with a... With a with an unusual love. You know, when my wife got the phone call as I was being transported in an ambulance, she got the phone call that I was heading to the emergency room and that it was kind of a big deal. 
she dropped what she was doing and left to see me there. Now, if she would have shown up two days later with TJ Maxx bags in her hand, (laughs) I would have been wondering, does she really love me? What's going on here? Let's uncover what's going on. Let's make some application. The traditional reading of this goes something like this. Jesus was at least one day away from Bethany. If he waited two days, then as he returned back, Jesus, uh, the Lazarus would certainly be dead four days. And there was this belief among the Jews at the time, listen, there was this belief among the Jews at the time that one spirit or soul stayed with the dead body for three days. All right? And so the, the thinking is, well, if Jesus waits and waits, and certainly Lazarus will be dead, and then we will definitely see this miracle, and everyone's going to know, wow, well, he was really dead. So um, this must be the Son of God. That's kind of how the, the typical reading of this goes. But as nice as it sounds, it doesn't give proper credence to two things. One, Jesus loved Lazarus and Martha and Mary. Trust me, if he could have been there, if he could have done anything to get there in time, he would have done that. He would have saved them the sorrow and the grief. Jesus loved them. He would have. He wouldn't sit there going, well, I need Lazarus to die. You know, I love him. I'm just going to, you know. No. But also, it ignores the fact that Lazarus was already dead by the time the messengers arrived. If you do the math, if you count up to days, um, when Jesus finally got there, he had been dead four days, which means that Lazarus died shortly after the messengers left. Somehow, supernaturally, Jesus knew this, right? He knew that Lazarus was dead. Jesus didn't need to rush to Bethany to save Lazarus because he was already dead. Now, Why wait the two days? Well, it's not the first time that we see Jesus waiting for a proper time. Remember at the wedding in Cana where Jesus' mother was telling him to go and do something? Remember when his brothers said, hey, go up to Jerusalem for the Feast of the Tabernacles. In these cases, Jesus seemed to wait for the proper time. What does this tell us? It tells us a very important truth that Jesus acts in accordance with the will of God the Father rather than in accordance with the wishes of people around him, even his own family members, even those he, whom he deeply loves, and even you and me. He acted in God's good time, not in the time human wisdom deemed best. How does this challenge you? Are you one of those Christians all over, that you see all over America that talks a big game about seeking God's will? But no sooner does God's will trump their will and then they blame God or they say, well, God just must be a little tiny God or God doesn't care for me. Is that you or are you more or, or are you capable of affirming God's love for you even though he does not respond to your wishes in the way that you prefer. In other words, are you a follower of Christ that John, who's written this gospel, calls us to be as he retells this story? 
After two days, Jesus tells his disciples, it's time to go awaken Lazarus. We see this in verses 11 through 15. After saying these things, he said to them, this is kind of like funny as well. He says, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that, it was, uh, that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Two important points. One, for those um, for whom Jesus' compassionate love and grace has come upon their lives, for those um, people who've experienced God's grace through Christ, death isn't really death. It's more like sleep. All throughout the New Testament, when, the, when New Testament writers speak of, of a saint's death, a Christian's death, they speak of it as sleep. Not that Christians won't eventually be torn to bits by lions in the arena or blown and, and burned up in twin towers. We die, but really it's like a sleep. As our bodies lie wherever they lie, our spirits are at rest in the presence of Christ. So in the New Testament, followers of Jesus aren't said to have died, but to have fallen asleep in the Lord. But know this, that is not true of Jesus. Jesus is nowhere said to have slept when he died. No, Jesus died. When his heart stopped beating, when he breathed his last, he endured the pains of hell and the full wrath of God for the sins of the world, including your sins. Jesus did not sleep. He suffered. He died and was buried so that we who trust in him, though we die, yet we rest in him. That is the love of Christ towards sinners like us. That is the work of his divine compassion for those who are lost and lonely and broken and who have no hope in themselves to save themselves. So that's the first point. For the Christian, death is more like sleep. The second point here is that God uses our suffering to deepen our faith. And by the way, that's a good thing. Jesus says Lazarus is sleeping, but his disciples didn't understand, did they? So when Jesus said Lazarus is sleeping, the disciples thought, well, everything's going to be okay. There's no rush. In fact, there's really no need to go back to Bethany, and that's a good thing. Why is that a good thing? Because Bethany is in Judea. It's two miles away from Jerusalem. Just a few days prior, the, the, the leaders uh, in Jerusalem wanted to kill Jesus. No doubt his disciples as well. That's why they left. If they were to return, even to help poor old Lazarus, there was a likelihood that Jesus and his followers would be captured and would be killed. But Jesus calls his followers to risk life and limbs so that God's will may be done and that God's glory may be manifested in their lives. So Jesus says plainly, Guys, when I said Lazarus was sleeping, I meant he was dead, right? And could you imagine being the disciples there? Oh, 
Oh, he's dead. (laughs) Well, why didn't you say so in the first place, right? Sometimes following Jesus isn't all that easy. Jesus wants to take us deeper into faith and trust and belief. That was his desires with the disciples, right? And it's his desire with you. Verse 15, Jesus says, And for your sake I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. Jesus is saying a couple things. He's saying he's glad, not for the sake of Lazarus, but for the sake of the disciples, that he wasn't there to heal Lazarus. See, God has a way of using suffering in this world, suffering that we encounter, for the sake of something good. What was the good thing that Jesus desired to press into his disciples? That they may believe. Now, understand, they did believe, at least 11 out of the 12. They believed, but Jesus wanted to take them to a deeper belief. My friends, Jesus does that to this very day. He allows you to experience sorrow and hardship and trials so that he can take you to a deeper faith in him. I cannot tell you how many times I find myself tempering my prayers. Maybe you do as well. This week I found myself, as I was was praying to God, that he would make me a more compassionate man. I I found myself pausing and realizing what I was asking. I was giving God the freedom to bring crisis or trauma or trial or suffering into my life. It's true, right? If you want to become more compassionate, sometimes you need to suffer before you can see the suffering of others. And so I paused in my prayer and I said, do you really want that prayer answered? Do you really think, Mark Middlecoff, that being more, a more compassionate man is worth the possibility of God bringing hardship into your life? I'm not proud of it. That, that's what, how I was praying. That's how I often pray. Those of you here who have a lot of nice stuff and you're storing up treasure on earth and you're putting your hope in it, you believe that somehow it's going to cover your grief and your sorrow of this life. Do you know that if you pray to God that he would take away your love of things, He might bring financial crisis into your life. Would you welcome financial ruin so that your love of God and faith in Christ might grow? See, Jesus wants us to follow him to deeper belief. You know, you and I cannot be content this year to walk with the same amount of faith that we had last year. Last year's faith was sufficient for last year. But Jesus wants to take us somewhere different, somewhere more challenging, somewhere deeper. And last year's faith isn't good enough. And so God in his grace and his mercy brings trials and hardships into our life for the purpose of us getting deeper. 
Jesus has bigger plans for your life, each and every year of your life. And to go farther, you need to believe more. Our faith must not stagnate. And so God is good to bring trials into our lives. They take us from belief to greater belief. They take us from faith to deeper faith. They take us from trust to a more abiding trust. So the disciples accept Jesus' call to risk their lives so that they may honor their master's wishes. As you go back later in this week, hopefully, and read through the whole story, you're going to see Thomas, doubting Thomas, actually being a brave, courageous man. He says, well, then let us go and die with him. Who's the him? Lazarus? Well, more likely Jesus. If that's what's coming, let's go die with him. I'm going to believe more. Ends up, Thomas, according to church tradition, traveled after Jesus' death and resurrection, traveled to India. He was a great missionary there. He died a violent death, a spear in his side. So they arrived to a place. They're not in Bethany. Jesus stops short of Bethany. And what we see is Martha comes out to meet Jesus. And John records her, her words in verse 21. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Martha's words contain faith and blame. Faith in that she knows Jesus' identity. She knows who he is. She knows he could have healed Lazarus. But she also injects blame. Did you pick up on it? Basically, she's implying that if you were here, you could have done something. If you are here in time. In other words, where were you? Now, her blame isn't outright. It's tempered with faith and understanding. Both Mary and Martha knew that for Jesus to return to heal Lazarus, he would have to risk his own life. And they also know, well, Lazarus died right after the messengers left. So Martha's blame was tempered with understanding. But still she wondered what life would have been like if Jesus would have just been there. Some of you have had those same thoughts before, haven't you? You know that Jesus is on his throne. You know that he could send a legion of angels to come and to leave you in your circumstances. So why didn't you, you ask? Why didn't the doctor catch that small lump before it became too big? Why did you even let that person into my life? If you would have been there, What compassionate words does Jesus have for Martha? Well, Jesus presses into her mind the understanding of God's big picture. Jesus says at the beginning of verse 23, your brother will rise again. And Martha demonstrates that she already knows the big picture. For those of you who know what happened to Mary and Martha before, where Martha was like angry at Mary because she wouldn't do some of the house cleaning, right? Remember that? Martha, you got to understand, Martha here demonstrates that she is a mature follower of Jesus Christ. She sees the world through a heavenly perspective. God will one day restore the entire universe, earth included. And on that day, the Lord will raise to life all those um, who dwell in heaven, by spirit, and they're waiting for their bodies to be renewed and restored. Martha knows. 
Martha knows that this is what must really come in order for all of her hopes and dreams to truly be manifested. Until that day, there will be suffering and sin and death and grieving. Until that day, and Martha knows this. Martha knows about God's plan. Martha even knows a lot about who Jesus is. But she still needs to make room for something she's yet to grasp. Something that will transform her whole understanding of Jesus. Martha, Jesus says in verse 25, Martha, look me in the eyes. Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. In other words, Martha, I'm the one who's going to bring this all about. But actually, he says more than that. Did you notice he didn't say, I bring resurrection and life? Jesus says, he is resurrection and life. Don't gloss over that. Yes, Jesus is fully human, right? He's fully man. But there's something other about Jesus. You and I, if you wake up, uh, you and I, we are alive right now, right? We are alive. But we're not life. Jesus says he is life. Jesus is life because he is the divine, eternal son of God who spoke the whole universe and all of life into creation. Just read the beginning of John's gospel. And this very Jesus, he is saying, I'm going to bring this day about. I am the resurrection and the life. What an amazing claim. Some of you here just think Jesus was a nice teacher. He he had some great things to say. And he showed us how to sacrifice and be compassionate. Jesus makes a very bold claim. He says he's resurrection and life. I hope if you question that you would come to experience that and believe that. See, Jesus goes on to make sure that Martha understands the extent of Jesus' identity. He says, I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives, that is, everyone who's living when I return uh, and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Only through Jesus can resurrection and life come to you. It comes to you only by faith, that is, belief. In Jesus. It's not enough to conclude that Jesus was a nice man, that he did some wonderful things, that he even sacrificed his life. And, and um, No, you and I must assent to this truth. We, we, we need to embrace it as our only hope. And in a sense, because John is writing this for future generations to read, in a sense, Jesus is asking you this question. Do you believe? Do you believe he's the resurrection and the life? And that if you place your trust in him and him alone, that he will safe you, safeguard you for that day. Do you trust Jesus so much with your life that you believe he will carry you through your death? Martha says, yes, Lord, I believe you are the Christ, the son of God who's coming into the world. Now, Mary comes on this scene. Martha returns home, gets Mary. Mary's surrounded like with dozens of mourners. See, in Jesus' death, mourning over the death of another was considered to be a great piety. 
John tells us that Jews had come to mourn with Mary and Martha. Most likely they came out from Jerusalem. It's just a 30-minute walk away. They would be there for seven days to mourn with them. But Mary leaves Bethany to meet Jesus. The mourners follow along. They think that Mary's going to the tomb uh, to mourn over Lazarus' death. Mary arrives at the place where Jesus is waiting. She falls at his feet, and what does she say? Verse 32, she says the exact words as her sister. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Jesus shows us here, though, that he's able to distinguish between different personality types. Martha needed to be addressed with her brain. Mary with her heart. So Jesus doesn't enter in a dialogue with her, does he? No. What we see here happening is she falls on her feet. Uh, After getting up, she says these words, and then Mary begins to wail. And then all the wailers with her begin to wail. Picture the scene. Now, our English Bibles don't pick up on this. The word that we see in our English Bibles here is that they were weeping. But it's a different Greek word altogether. The Greek word means to wail out loud, to cry out with all your soul. And so Jesus, with loving eyes, sees Mary and Martha and all these people literally bawling their eyes out over the death of Lazarus. Now, how does Jesus respond? With compassion. Jesus models it for us. First, we read in verse 34 that two things. He was deeply moved in the spirit and greatly troubled. When Jesus observes people's sorrows, it moves him. Compassion begins with the ability to be moved by the sorrows of others. Jesus begins by seeing it with his eyes. And upon seeing the sorrow of of others, Jesus is deeply moved inside. This phrase, greatly troubled, refers to what compassion works up on the inside of a person, right? Being greatly troubled is the motivating force of our love that works its way into compassion for others. See, until you're deeply troubled about your spending habits, you're not going to create a budget and stick with it, right? Likewise, unless you're deeply troubled by the suffering of another, you will not do anything about it. Jesus saw the sorrow. He beheld the violent throes of grief. He heard the cries. It moved him and it troubled him deep inside. So first in compassion, Jesus sees the sorrow and takes pity and he's stirred to action. Then he moves out. He asks, where have you buried him? They say, follow us. And in that moment, that's when we get to verse 35. Jesus wept. Now, it's not the theatrical wailing of Mary and the mourners. The Greek word is a little different. But it's no less sorrowful. Some of you are old enough here to remember the 1970s public service announcement the one that begins with the Native American rowing a canoe on that pristine river. But then it cuts to him rowing his canoe in a a very polluted port. And then he arrives on on the shore and there's trash all around it. And then the next scene, he's standing by a busy highway and some bozo throws a bag of trash out and explodes at his feet. And then the camera zooms in on his face. 
And you see like the staid sorrow of this man who's seen his country ravaged. And then just one tiny little tear trickles down his cheek. My friends, I think that's the kind of sorrow that Jesus experienced here. Everyone there picked up on it. In verse 36, the Jews said, see how he loved him. They saw Jesus' compassion. But then again, not all of them. And verse 37 reveals that some questioned his love for Lazarus. Listen, but some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? In other words, where were you, Jesus? A little late now. A lot of good your tears do now. But Jesus' tears do do us good now. How so? Our answer comes from asking the question, why was Jesus weeping? Was he weeping over the fact that Lazarus was dead? That's what the mourners think. They think that Jesus is sad about Lazarus just like they are, but I don't think so. Jesus knew that in just a moment he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead, right? There was joy there. No, Jesus wept because he felt sorrow for their sorrow. Out of love and compassion, Jesus is moved and troubled when he sees the effect that sin has upon mankind. He weeps, and in doing so, he reminds us that any death, even one death, is a destruction of God's good plan. It reveals that this world has become corrupted, so much so that it requires the Son of God to enter in, to take on human flesh, to live and die, to defeat sin and death, and to rise himself in victory. Jesus looked at these wailing women, and it moved him to tears. My friends, this tells us something important. Now we know Jesus has risen. He sits on his throne in heaven, and Jesus sees you in your sorrow. He may not show up to take you out of it, but he sees you in it. In compassion, he sees it, and he's moved in his spirit. And he will come to you. Simply say, Jesus, let me take you to where my sorrow lies. My grief is in a tomb over here. Come and see. Be resurrection and life for me here and now as I wait for the resurrection and life that is yet to come. My friends, don't misunderstand God's love and compassion. He sees you in your sorrow and he will meet you where you are. Jesus weeps even though he knows Lazarus will will rise again. This is a great comfort for us. Jesus doesn't offer biblical platitudes. Jesus doesn't say, now come on, stop crying, come on. God works out all things for good, you know. Just come on, get a stiffen upper lip and stop crying. Put away those tears. Come on now, be a good Christian. No. Yes, it's true. God will work out all things for those who've been saved by his grace. And yes, it'll be true. it's true that there is a day when Jesus will dry every tear and we will remember our sorrows no more. 
But Jesus does not give Mary a rational explanation. He doesn't give her deep theological truths. He gives her his tears. You see, at some point, theological truths aren't enough. They don't give us all that we need. Yes, we can point to God's sovereignty. We can point to God's providence. And we do know that God has promised to work out all things for good. We do know that God is on his throne and he is a glorious and good God. But when the highway patrol calls and and says, we need you to identify a body, or when the doctor says, I'm sorry, I couldn't do anything more, it's in these moments that theological truths aren't enough. When logic fails, we need to know that Jesus wept. Jesus feels sorrow for our sorrows. Well, I think you know how the story goes. Jesus does raise Lazarus from the dead. Jesus approaches the tomb of Lazarus. And Mary warns him not to open it, right? It's been four days, right? Don't take the stone and roll it away. Why? I like how the old King James describes it. Martha says to Jesus, By this time, he stinketh. Last week, some of you know I'm an avid road bike cyclist. I was out riding last week, and I passed by a roadkill. I think it was a box turtle, I think. Kind of resembled that, all right? And then two days later, I passed it again. The odor made me gag. Roadkill stinketh. Lazarus stinketh. But then, Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Jesus raised his voice and he said, Lazarus, come out. I like what the commentator Matthew Henry states on this point. He says that Jesus had to address Lazarus by name. Why? Because if Jesus simply would have just said, come out, all who have died would have risen to life. Interesting point. Jesus said, Lazarus, come out. And he rose from the dead. All right, what are we going to take away here this morning. I hope a lots, lots of stuff. Jesus is full of compassion for the plight of mankind. In his greatest act of compassion, he went to the cross for us. If you do a word study on the word compassion, it comes from the, the old Latin. It's a, it's a combination word, com, meaning together, pati, meaning to suffer, to come together, to suffer. We refer to Jesus' death on the cross as what? The passion of Christ. Jesus has come with great passion to enter into the suffering of a broken humanity. 
He lived the life we should have lived. He died the death that we deserve. And he's won a victory over sin and death. And not just Lazarus' resurrection, but more importantly, Jesus' resurrection proves to us that what he says is true and is going to come about. My friends, there will be a day when Jesus doesn't qualify his command. There will be a day when Jesus returns and he says to all who have lived and yet died, he will say, come out. Some to everlasting judgment, some to everlasting peace. Until that day, the world we live in, we will continue to experience struggle. We live. We suffer, we die, or we sleep. This must change how we view ourselves in the midst of our suffering. Though Jesus may not come to save you from the things that cause you sorrow, he will meet you with great compassion. Will you invite him in? Will you open your life to the compassion of Jesus? Will you take him to where your sorrows lie? Will you trust him to be your resurrection in life? And if you ever come to doubt God's compassionate care for you, remember Jesus wept. Let's pray. Father, we need changed hearts and minds. We're so quick to cast blame that you're not a God who cares or acts. How foolish we are. We thank you for this message this morning. We thank you that that the, the Son of God, the creator of all things, is capable of weeping, of having sorrow for our sorrows. Help us be reminded of that this week. May we not be the same people we were last week. May you take us to a deeper, more abiding faith in you. May you grow us and stretch us and take us where you will, we pray. Amen.